in Matthew chapter 7, last Sunday in the Sermon on the Mount. Delighted that next Sunday, another of our missionaries will be with us, Tim Pewitt, who uh, serves the field in Spain, will be here and he will bring the word next Sunday morning. So always a delight to have Tim and Ginny with us as well. Uh, one other thing before we consider the word together, if you looked up here this morning, you said something looks different. Not me. It's this, the pulpit. If, um, those of you who were ever involved in moving furniture around here know that the secret about the old pulpit, it was fine. It, it served its purpose well. Um, but there was this black sort of drape in the front that hid the rock. And it wasn't because we were trying to be spiritual and build the pulpit on the rock. It was the rock that held the pulpit from tipping over when you would lean on it in some way. So there was rocks, there was bricks, there was all kinds of stuff that went on underneath that drape. Um, so we are blessed that one of our members um, worked really hard and built a new, stable, beautiful pulpit. And he'll probably not want me to say um, his name, but Jared Smith, um, did, did a wonderful job in building this and I'm grateful to him and grateful for the opportunity to bring the word this morning. We've all had firsthand experience with the, uh, the gap between talking and doing. Saying, I, I need to do this, telling others I'm going to do this, I, I got plans to do this, talking about how I'm going to do it, and, and, and yet there's a gap until I actually do it. It still doesn't happen. In the worst case scenario is we talk about it and we actually don't do it. The, the statements never turn into actions. There's promises of good and yet they never seem to quite come to fruition. Well, if you open to Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns about this in a very serious way that there are eternal consequences when it comes to talking and acting in terms of following Jesus. When it comes to saying that, that I'm interested in Jesus or I, I might want to follow Jesus or I, I'm even a Christian and actually living that out and the actions that go with it. When it comes to following Jesus, talking about following him, words are not enough. Pledges of loyalty are not enough. Reciting a, an, an accurate creed about Jesus is, is not enough. Scripture speaks that if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, your actions are, are as, if not more important than your words. The issue of obedience Jesus brings here in Matthew 7. I'm going to read verses 21 through 29, and then we'll go back through the passage. Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Last week, we, uh, we looked at verses 15 to 20 warning from Jesus about false teachers. And he says in that passage that you will recognize them by their fruits in verse 20. His warning is about both their teaching, their words, their instruction, 
and the fact that it is false, but he also makes it very clear that ultimately the character and conduct of their lives will expose them, that, that the fruit that they bear will demonstrate who they really are. Actions matter. What you say is important because your actions will either confirm or deny what you profess. You may say that you believe something, but it's what you do then that matters. Whether or not you you follow what it is you say that you believe or whether or not you avoid that which is forbidden based on on, on what you believe about what God has said. And, And we'll see that in our passage this morning. This is Going back to verse 13, this has been the the closing climactic portion of the Sermon on the Mount where where Jesus has made it abundantly clear that his teaching was not just some moralistic endeavor, some some go be a do-gooder, but it was brought to a point where in verse 13 he says, enter by the narrow gate. He is calling his listeners to respond, not to simply think about, to ponder, but ultimately to follow him to become disciples of Jesus. But now he's also saying, I I don't want you to merely say, okay, that's interesting. I like Jesus. Kind of want to see where this goes with Jesus. I might follow Jesus or or, or anything along that line. He's saying, I want you to follow me. I want your profession to be accompanied by daily living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so here's here's how we'll break this passage down. Three points. Our actions do speak louder than our words. Our actions reveal what we actually believe. And then third, our actions have eternal consequences. So first, actions do speak louder than words. Verse 21 is, is sort of the pivotal part that starts this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see the two verbs underlined there because that's, that's the contrast Jesus is making in this verse. Not everyone, this, the, the whole group of those who say, who, who make a profession, only those who do the will of the Father. And he's distinguished between verbal profession and, and then doing the will of the Father. It is right to call Jesus Lord. Verbal profession is important. In the very act of water baptism, one of the things that we ask people to do is to to share a testimony. And it is not really the the story of their lives. They're not telling us their personal story. What they're doing is telling a story about what Jesus has done in them, how their life was transformed by the grace and power of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the the hero of these stories. That's why we love baptisms, because we all hear this marvelous evidence of God's grace in this person's life. And so public profession is good. Romans 10, 9 says you must confess Jesus as Lord. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is going to make it very clear. He, he makes the distinction between those who acknowledge me before others, who will, who will acknowledge that they are followers publicly of Jesus Christ, and those who shirk back from that and who won't confess Jesus before others. And, and he condemns them. And so public profession is good. Telling people I believe in Jesus and the gospel is important. But a profession doesn't stand on its own. There must be a life as well that demonstrates that. True disciples are those who do the will of the Father in heaven. That's his point here. It's not what you say. It's whether or not you do the will of the Father. Obedience is the ultimate mark of identification for us as believers in Jesus Christ. 
It's interesting to note that, that Jesus is not saying, when he talks about the activities that they're doing, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? Jesus is not saying any of those things is inherently bad, nor is he even denying that they did them as if they were somehow deluded and were lying in terms of their claims. But what he's emphatic about is what you were doing was not the will of the Father in heaven. Whatever it was, for whatever reasons they were doing it, for whatever selfish motives they were doing it, they were doing something that God had not desired for them to do, had not called them to do in that instance. And they are doing something for whatever the, the, the wrong reasons are, and they are not obeying God. This should remind us of Acts chapter 19 and the sons of Sceva. He was a, a Jewish high priest. And if you remember, they're watching Paul, and Paul is casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and they are really intrigued by this. He's got a crowd that comes around, and it's, it's a powerful sort of spiritual encounter, and it's dramatic, and, and people are watching, and there's change going on, and all of this that's happening. And they say, we can do that. If the only trick here is to use the name of Jesus, we can do the same thing, and we can cast out demons and just say the name of Jesus. And then Acts 19, verse 15 says, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That, that is a, a demonstration of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7 when he speaks about these imposters who were using the name of Jesus as sort of a magical formula. Well, if we just say Jesus, then, then all this cool stuff happens. And they were not his disciples. Your actions... Do speak louder than your words. Calling yourself a Christian, taking part in some occasional spiritual activities only goes so far. The bottom line question is, am I obeying God? As, as I see what God's word says, as I see what it calls me to, as to how to live and how to respond and, and what I should be doing and what I should not be doing, am I striving by God's grace to follow that? to avoid what he forbids, and to do what he commands. That's what Jesus is saying. True disciples do the will of the Father. They are not, as he describes at the end of verse 23, workers of lawlessness. Those are the distinguishing marks. They understand that God has a will and a way, and they are following it, not being lawless, doing whatever they please. If you, you think back a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about that, the narrow way and the broad way, Following on the narrow path, what, what, what is it that constrains the narrow path? What is it that sort of restricts it and causes it to be a narrow path? It is the, the will and the word of God. It, this is, these are the boundaries. These are the guardrails God has established. And he wants us to walk this way after Jesus and not to simply cross over on the other side and say, I can do whatever I want to do. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to follow Jesus on this one. I'm going to go over here for now. And, and the narrow way calls us to obedience. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, when, when Jesus prays and, and he's teaching us to pray, he says, pray your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On, on earth as it is in heaven. And again, the, the issue is obedience. Lord, help me to obey. Help me to live out your will, to do what you've called me to do. And it matters so much that at the end of this section, Jesus says the consequence for the kind of hypocrisy that says, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I don't necessarily do Jesus stuff or do everything Jesus wants me to do. The consequence of that is the words of Jesus, I never knew you. That is 
That is dreadfully ominous. That, that, that is not Jesus having a forgetful moment or, or not acknowledging the person's existence. It is saying, I do not know you as a disciple. If you have neglected the Father's will, you may have called my name repeatedly, but if you have not been willing to do what you have been called to do and what obedience to God looks like, then I never knew you. All the religious endeavors of these people were really just this thin disguise for lawlessness, doing stuff, hopefully convincing others that, you know, I'm a, I'm a spiritual person. I, I, I'm, I'm in the right place, and yet their hearts are far from obeying him. Your actions do speak louder than your words. Verse 24 again. Let's just read this illustration he gives one more time. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Rain fell, floods came, winds blew, beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, floods came, winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Actions speak louder than words. Your actions then reveal the sincerity of your beliefs. Your actions demonstrate if your beliefs actually are substantial, if you actually believe it enough to do something about it. Do you just hear it? Do you just say, well, okay, yeah, that, that, that might make sense. No, this is, this is hearing that results in belief that produces action. And so the illustration he uses of, of two men who both essentially get the same warning. When you build this house, know that there will be storms. They will be brutal storms, and they will beat against the house, and they will, they will flood the house, and the wind will be strong against the house. And so, where you build that house, what foundation that house is on, it must be able to withstand these things. The one who builds the house in the way that he is told, which is on the, the foundation, which is the rock, he acts on what he believes. He hears the warning, he says, okay, I think that makes sense, but then he doesn't just stop there and procrastinate or, or put it off or decide to do it his own way. He obeys, which is to build his house on the rock. The foolish man is told the same morning, storm's coming, better be ready, same instruction, build on a firm rock, hears it, maybe even says, okay, it's one option, it's good for him, it's not a bad idea, but nah. I, I like where everybody else is building. I like, I like the sand. It's easy to build on sand. I don't have to work on this big old rock. I'm just going to build on sand. And so it says that ultimately he does that, and eventually all that he has is destroyed. Both heard the warnings. Both were given the instruction. Both knew that storms could come, storms would come, and they could be devastating. Both heard the command to build the house on the right kind of foundation. Both may even have nodded, said, got it, makes sense. Only one obeyed. Only one withstood the storm. The others was destroyed. This is a serious warning to us, to you, to anyone, against the temptation of playing with God's word, of, of, of hearing God speak in his word and trying to find ways to minimize it, to reinterpret it to make it easier, to somehow dumb it down in some way and lessen what it requires. This is a warning against embracing the sort of mentality of the day toward the Bible that says, don't you think it's time your beliefs caught up with the 21st century? Don't, don't, you, 
think it's time that you finally started being like a, a, a 2021 person. You don't really believe the whole Bible, do you? That this is somehow some kind of sacred writing it's in, in, in its entirety? You can tell people all you want that you are a follower of Jesus. I'm a Jesus follower. I put it in my social media bios. Therefore, that, that affirms that I am a Jesus follower. There is nothing wrong with that. That is a good thing. I, I, I don't mean to belittle that because that's a, a great conversation starter. Hopefully somebody says, what does it mean to be a Jesus follower? And you're able to open up the gospel of Jesus Christ to them and speak to them. But your life must match your profession. You must also demonstrate by your obedience... And by your turning away from that which God forbids, that you are being like Jesus. And so do you have mercy like Jesus? Do you love others like Jesus? Do you love holiness and purity like, like Jesus does? Those are all ways to, to see whether or not we really are following Jesus. Because life's storms have either come, your life has already been battered in some way, or it will be battered in some way. That much is sure. Jesus is, is, is assuring us of that. And what he's saying here is that how you respond and what you build on will ultimately determine what you whether or not you stand. How you, how you act on what you say you believe will expose what you really believe whether or not you do it. If all your friends, in essence, say, why don't you build over here? This is, this is where we all are. This, this is where the sand is. You want sand, you don't want rocks, right? And it's nice over here. And the only people that, that build on rocks, those, those are old school people. They're just stubborn and they're inflexible and they're intolerant. And, and, and there's only a few of them anyway. Don't be one of those rock people. Just come over here. Nobody wants to listen to those people anymore anyway. world has a whole host of really enticing sand piles that it is urging people to build on, that it is urging you to build on. There's the wildly popular sand pile of pluralism that says, listen, I'm glad you believe what you believe, but you've got to know that God accepts people, as long as they're good people, that God accepts them, this idea that there's this exclusiveness to trusting in Jesus Christ, that's not very kind. God's broader than that. The attractive sand pile of sort of reimagining Christianity as it best suits me. I, you don't really think that the church is any kind of vital part of Christianity. You do what you want to do. I mean, Jesus is about love and grace. And so, you know, you, you, you do your Christianity as you do your Christianity. It goes on and on and on. You don't really, you don't really think porn is bad, do you? You're not really against abortion, right? You, you do know it's none of your business. You don't really love and respect all people as being made in the image of God. You're not going to, you're not going to let your so-called integrity jeopardize our project here at work. You're going to pull suddenly the, I, I have some truth and character card, and, and, and what the client doesn't know isn't going to hurt them. So, you know, you, you don't really need that, do you? You know, if you take this job, they expect your life. This is everything. You, you need to tell your, your, your spouse, your family, that you're going to live and eat and breathe this job, because that's the way it is, right? 
you do get the fact that there's, there's a whole lot of religions that have their writings and they all claim to be true, so there's really not that much special about your Bible. And it just goes on and on and on. What we do in the, the circumstances of life, the pressures, the temptations, the storms that come in, those things have a way of pressing on us and pushing out of us what is really in our hearts, of exposing what it is we believe because it's in those moments that we act. And we either act out against the circumstances in anger or selfishness or, or pride or foolishness, or we act in submission to the Lord and say, I don't necessarily like this moment, but I'm going to strive to obey you in this. I'm going to do what you called me to do in this. I'm going to seek to be loving and gracious in this. The heart of all of this goes back to the very title Jesus uses in verse 21 when he says, Lord. That's, that's, the, that's the pivot point in this because he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. He's not using Lord as in sort of a, a British term of, of honor or respect for somebody that's higher up. He's using Lord in the sense that they were coming, and, and certainly a Jewish audience understood what he meant by this. He's talking master. Leon Morris writes, when the Old Testament was translated, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, Lord was employed consistently as the translation for the divine name Yahweh. It was the word that Christians found used of God in their Bible. And accordingly, it was very significant when they came to call Jesus by this title. Lord is a title of majesty. It is, it is an acknowledgement that our Savior is our King. Our Savior is our Master. It is it is especially true in this context because as we're going to see in a moment, he moves on to the subject of e eternal judgment. Well, that's the whole point of the illustration with the houses. If you call Jesus Lord, then you are confessing, acknowledging that he is master. That ultimately when it comes to my life, I desire to be in submission to his leadership because he knows me best and he loves me. And he's gracious and he's just, but he is calling me to obey him. And that is the very best place I can be. And if you truly believe that, then your actions, not, not perfectly, but your actions, I'll say consistently, steadily, will demonstrate that Jesus is Lord. And so if he commands you to do something, you do it. If he forbids something, you don't do it. That's, that's the one who does the will of the Father. Again, I would, I would refer you back to where this starts in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. This is all very simple. Jesus does this Sermon on the Mount and, and gets to this point when his audience might be thinking, the old so what? It's what you should do probably at every sermon is somewhere during the sermon go, okay, so what? What do I do with this? And so somewhere during the sermon, they've heard everything that he said and they've said, so what? And he says, this is really very simple. You must follow me. You must now enter by the narrow gate. All that I have just described to you about the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, being merciful, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being meek, being a peacemaker, all of that is what I set before you if you follow me, if you will be my disciple, if you will receive the righteousness that I long 
to give you. And so he has described it. He's going to live it out through the rest of his earthly life and show them what it means to be his disciple. And our response back cannot be to say, well, I'll consider it or I'll pick and choose the parts that I, I think are good, the stuff that I want to do. Jesus calls us to obedience and then says your actions have eternal consequences, namely the two houses. That's the point that he depicts here. The one house stands. It stands through whatever comes. And the thing I want you to just catch about his illustration is, especially at the end of verse 25, when he says that it, it did not fall, and that last phrase, because it had been founded on the rock. His emphasis, it, it, it's, it's really passive there, what he's saying, in, in terms of, it's not because you built it so well, it's not because you equipped it with the right security stuff. It is because of where you built it, and you built it on Christ. He is what's sure. Your, our construction is, mm, it's marred by sin and fallenness, and it, it receives a lot of his grace, but it's the foundation, ultimately, that we're resting on, that we're believing and building on. We lived in, in southeast Alaska, one of the first things that we came to experience something we'd never heard before, the ground in, in, throughout Southeast Alaska is called muskeg. It, it's like this combination swampy, sort of boggy kind of vegetation and water, and you walk on it, and it's like walking on a sponge, and then there's these pools just all over the place, and you walk with your dog, and your dog helps you figure out how deep they are when your dog falls in them. Um, dog survived, it's just fine. Don't want, don't want anybody to get tight about the pets. But, you, when you built, had to sink pilings. You had to bring in heavy equipment that would take pilings and would drive them down 10 to, to 20 feet in some cases to try to find some kind of hard surface upon which then your house would be built on top of these pilings. The pilings were essentially creosote-soaked telephone poles. I don't know if they use creosote anymore, but they did back in that day. They were not attractive. They didn't add to the aesthetics of the house, didn't make the house any larger or any better, but the whole house rested on them. In fact, you'd, you'd sink the pilings and build the house, and you'd put a skirt around the bottom. You didn't see the pilings, and yet they were the most essential part of that house. Everything rested on that. Your, your family and, and everything that was in that house because the whole structure was supported by the foundation. And the truth that our creator has revealed to us through the prophets of old and through his son Jesus Christ is that there can only be one foundation to your life. There is only one sure foundation. And that is to fully trust in Jesus Christ to trust him and obey him and find joy and gladness in doing his will. Your life must rest on that foundation completely because everything we are and all that we have and everything that matters for all of eternity rests on whether we believe the foundation that God has given us in his word through which he has revealed to us his son Jesus Christ and his gospel. Will we believe that and obey it and do what it says? And that's what Jesus is saying, because ultimately your actions have consequences. He says, you rest your life on me, on this sure foundation, and the very worst storms that can come along will not move that foundation. They may knock some siding off the house. They may knock some shingles off the roof. They may make life hard at some times. There may even be a little water that seeps in from time to time, but that foundation will not move, and you will be sure and you will be kept by him.
And if not, you build your life on anything else other than Jesus and the truth of God's word. If you are not crushed by the storms of life, Jesus assures us you will not be able to stand through the final judgment of your creator. If you've built your foundation on something other than him, there is no hope for eternity and his perfect righteous judgment. The, the Old Testament helped to, to set this up. Isaiah does at least a couple of times. God warning about a stone, Isaiah 28, 16, a stone he establishes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. What he's saying there is, my foundation is one that you can, you can stay on. And so when, when moments of panic, when moments of trial, temptation, when all this, you don't have to scurry around and try to, try to figure out what now, just rest on me. Know that, that I am sure. I am a good foundation. He had said earlier in Isaiah chapter 8, the prophet gives this warning, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and your dread. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. The prophet is anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ. And he is saying there is a sure foundation that acts in two ways. It's either one that you rest on and you say, this is my foundation, and I will stand here, and that foundation holds me secure, or you will stumble over this rock. This stone will cause you to fall, and you will fall, and life's storms will come, and the judgment of God will come, and you will fall, and you will not stand. You can't just say, yeah, I believe in Jesus so much, but I don't, I don't really buy into the whole thing, the whole package of Jesus. Because the stone that is Jesus is like a stumbling block. It's a dreadful warning, but that's how Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount. That's the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, of this glorious sermon is, and the rains came and the floods came and the house fell and it collapsed mightily. That's how he ends the sermon. So if there's any point at which his audience is going, I wonder what he's getting at here. Well, what's he really driving at? What's the climax to it? The climax is, if you heard it right, is Jesus saying, hear me, follow me, obey me. Do what I'm calling you to do. Don't, don't be that house that collapses and its collapse is great. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. The only proper response, he's writing about the Sermon on the Mount, the only proper response to this word which Jesus brings with him from eternity is simply to do it. See, Bonhoeffer was way before Nike, wasn't he? <laughs> Jesus has spoken. His is the word. Ours is the obedience. That's simple. And that's the simplicity of the Sermon on the Mount. Here I set before you a way, and it is a way of life, and it is a way of a sure foundation, an eternal hope. But for those who refuse and who perhaps even speak well of Jesus, oh, yeah, he's a fine man. He had some good teaching, some great philosophy, but will not submit to him as Lord and repent of their sins and trust him as Savior. The outcome is disastrous. All is lost. The house falls and its fall is great. 
Verse 28, and, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. That Greek word for astonished means to be struck or knocked out by a blow. It is they, man, it, if, if it was 21st century, they'd be going, right? Listen to what he just said. Listen to what he just called us to. The scribes make rules. We're struggling to try to keep up with their rules, much less keep the rules. They make one rule after another. What Jesus has just said now has amazed them. And I would submit to you that, that that's a great place for us as we end the Sermon on the Mount, is to stand in awe of Christ. It is to, to pause again realize that God the Son, eternal God, left behind the glories of heaven, veiled himself in flesh, became a man so that he might live and bear, endure temptation and, and, and walk and understand what it is that we experience that so he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and then to suffer on the cross and take our sin on himself that he might die in our place and bear the wrath of his father, that holy wrath, and then powerfully rise from the dead, defeating sin and death, so that in him you and I can now find the foundation that is the rock and build on it and have that foundation in this life and forevermore. And it is a foundation that will never, ever be shaken. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we take your word as the truth, I pray for our body of believers in a world that is increasingly pluralistic, that we would hold fast to these truths, that we would cling to the words of our Savior, that even when it's difficult, even when storms have come, that we would not be drawn to try to build somewhere else, but rather that we would be a people who would land, stay, put, rest on the rock of Christ and his gospel. Lord, I, I, I thank you that you are gracious. Lord, our, our houses sometimes can be uh, pretty messy and, and our lives, we struggle sometimes when these, these winds come and these temptations come. And so we, we come to you grateful for your grace toward us, grateful that you do not abandon us, that you walk with your people that you continue to pour out your spirit to give us endurance, to equip us to obey. Father, we don't, none of us here, I think, has to think very hard to, to rewind back to the last moment of disobedience, the last moment when we knew we should do something, say something, or not respond in a certain way, and, and we failed, and we sinned. And so we, we come back to you in this sweet moment of prayer, confessing, and thanking you for mercy and forgiveness. Thanking you that, that you are a God who brings hope and grace to your people. And that you have called us to rest in you and find that mercy in you. Father, I pray that if there's anybody listening online, anybody in this room who is not sure if, if something were to happen to them today, they were to stand before their creator and they were uncertain of what would happen. I pray that today you would... You would draw them to yourself, open their eyes to see that in Christ there is the certainty of a sure foundation that if they will run to Jesus, trust in him, 
acknowledge their sin before him and believe in his death and resurrection, there is life. Lord, for all here, all online who've done that, please help us this week by your spirit, by your word, by the community of believers. Help us to obey. Help us to to do hard things when you call us to. Help us to run the other way from stuff that you have said we shouldn't do. Help us by our words and our actions to live out Christ and to show people the wonders of Christ. Thank you. Thank you for the immovable foundation, for the hope that we have in you. These things we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.